0: to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance axis deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber Get some Axis Deer Sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com, that's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, Venison.com, and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. From Meteor's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana... This is Cal's Week in Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at Authorized Dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. Investigators with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife are trying to determine whether a club-wielding mailman illegally killed what one official described as, quote, the biggest turkey I have ever seen. Someone has been feeding turkeys in the West Sacramento neighborhood of Arden Arcade, and residents reported all the way back in October that these birds have been terrorizing mail carriers. It's unclear what's motivating this dislike of postal workers, but one resident told local media that the turkeys attack UPS employees along with mailmen. These brave delivery drivers have tried kicking the birds, hitting them with mailbags, and spraying them with pepper spray, but to no avail. One mail carrier apparently decided to send a message to those birds so they wouldn't forget. This person, who officials have not yet identified, took a club or stick and beat a 30-pound tom to death. They left it on the side of the road, and fish and wildlife officials came by later to pick it up. Patrick Foy of California Fish and Wildlife has been a warden for 25 years, and in an interview with local media described it as the biggest turkey he'd ever seen. As you might expect, the incident has divided the neighborhood. Some think the turkey had it coming, others said they were, quote, just really upset. Investigators are asking for any doorbell or security camera footage that might give them insight into the incident. They're trying to figure out whether the turkey was attacking the mail carrier when it got whacked, in which case the carrier could claim self-defense, or whether the attack was more of a preemptive strike. I'm no lawyer, but I have chased a few turkeys, and guess what? If you're chasing them, they can't be caught. Unless you have a shotgun, not a stick. Anyway, it's legal in the state of California to kill an animal in self-defense as long as the action taken is reasonably necessary to prevent serious harm or death, and it's not filmed on Instagram. If that's not what happened this person could run into trouble with both animal cruelty laws and game regulations. California's spring turkey season doesn't start until March 26, and a stick or a club is definitely not a legal means of take. Because the mail never stops. <laughs> it just keeps coming and coming and coming. There's never a let-up. It's relentless. Every day it piles up more and more and more, and you got to get it out, but the more you get out, the more it keeps coming in. And then the barcode reader breaks, and it publishes Clearinghouse house down. all right, all right! All right. This week, we've got good bills, bad bills, and COVID deer. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. I went down to Omaha, Nebraska, where this year's Pheasant and Quail Forever Annual Meeting was held. Had a great time. There was a bird-dog parade, lots of shotguns. And just want to say that I have never been so happy to be in a room full of biologists, ecologists, and soil experts. I learned a lot, met a ton of new folks, and am just, you know, looking forward to a return visits. It's in Minneapolis next year. Book your tickets now. I don't think you can. If you do, don't go through Ticketmaster. One of the highlights for me was being able to have a bunch of questions answered regarding the North American National Grasslands Conservation Act. Howard Vincent, CEO of Pheasants and Quail Forever. Lan Tawney, CEO of BHA. Joel Webster, Western VP of TRCP. Sean Grassel of the Buffalo Nation's Grasslands Alliance, which is a coalition of 16 tribes and Ted Cook, president of the North American Grouse Partnership, were all excellent speakers, and I was truly impressed by their passions for these incredibly important ecosystems. Something to look forward to, the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. Ideally, this is going to fit in between the Farm Bill and the North American Wetlands Conservation Act, dedicated funding for the restoration and conservation of grasslands big bucks tons of birds incredible biological diversity pollinators come in this amazing package of huge drought tolerant fire resistant carbon sequestering ecosystems which is our grasslands this week, for our legislation update, we're bringing you important new developments on some bills we've covered in weeks past. First up, we've got Wyoming Bill SF-61, which I frothed at the mouth about back in episode 149. You remember this one, the Continuing the Certification of Greater Sage Grouse Farms, which allows industry to get off the hook for damage to grouse habitat by just buying a bunch of birds and doing nothing for the habitat, but we know that they just don't survive without the habitat, and dumping them on the landscape to feed coyotes isn't going to help the bird. As of March 11th, SF-61 had rocketed through the Wyoming legislature, passing the House by 44 votes to 15 and passing the Senate 28 to 1. That means that as of this recording, the bill is on Governor Mark Gordon's desk, waiting for his signature or veto. By the time you hear this, that bill may already be a law, but the game isn't over until Gordon signs it. And wouldn't it be fun to help him make the right decision? Call the governor at 307-777-7434 and ask him to kindly veto SF61 and do something for Habitat if, you know, he actually cares about restoring the greater sage-grouse. Back in episode 146, we highlighted Kentucky HB 395, which would have removed the state's Department of Fish and Wildlife from the executive branch and would have allowed the Department of Agriculture to appoint four of the nine Fish and Wildlife Commissioners. Good news. As of March 8, that bill has been withdrawn. Idaho HB 507, allowing lighted NOx and expandable broadheads. This one was signed by Governor Brad Little on March 7. We're glad Idahoans can use this technology now. However, we're pretty discouraged by the precedent of having this kind of change set down as law rather than instituted as easily changed regulation. I'm waiting on pins and needles to see what else big government can do for Idaho hunters. We have a trio of wins on legislation we covered in Vermont. SB 129 would have moved control of the State Fish and Wildlife Board over to the state legislature, which has shown itself to be very anti-hunting in the past. SB 129 has been set aside for this session, so although it's not fully dead, it has been significantly slowed down and will have more time to organize against it if it re-emerges. Vermont Bill, SB 281, was written as a full ban on coyote hunting with hounds, but the bill has now been significantly amended after input from the hunting community. It now would impose a moratorium on hound hunting for coyotes until Fish and Wildlife establishes new guidelines to resolve conflict between hunters and landowners. One of the big issues here has been hounds going onto private property and raising a ruckus. Now, if the new SB 281 becomes law, Hound hunters would need to get a permit, but they would not be required to get prior written permission from landowners. You might be getting the idea that the evolution of this bill represents something almost unheard of in contemporary political life. Compromise. So, we'll keep watching this one with our fingers and paws crossed. We might not get absolutely everything we want, but sometimes making your voice heard moves a bill toward a sane middle ground. Finally, from the Green Mountain State, SB201 set out to ban all foothold traps, no exceptions. But the bill that came out of the Natural Resources and Energy Committee would only require trappers to follow National Best Management Practices, or BMPs, which were written by the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies in cooperation with trapping groups. Most trappers already follow the BMPs, and the bill gives all trappers time to get traps consistent with BMP guidelines. Again, we don't know if it'll pass, but it would be a workable solution to a contentious issue. Two cheers for Vermont. In Virginia, we are happy to report that SB 8, allowing Sunday hunting, has passed both the House and the Senate. Looks like that is set to be signed. But call Governor Yonkin at 804-786-2211 just to be safe. Say, hey, appreciate what you're doing. Also, in Virginia, two bills looking to limit the right to retrieve of hound hunters died in committee. HB 1331 would have suspended anyone with a trespassing conviction from right to retrieve for five years, and HB 1344 would have required you to attempt to notify landowners before going onto their property to retrieve a dog if contact info was posted. The sponsor of the failed bills, Republican Delegate James Edmonds, said, quote, This is not the rural Virginia of 50 years ago. There is a higher sensitivity today for private property rights than in years past. Just as in Vermont, dogs near private property get you into conflict, we'll see how that conflict is managed in the years to come. Gosh! Still seems like being a good neighbor would go a long way. Hmm. Iowa bill SB 3134, which would end Iowa's ability to put land into conservation easement by reducing the amount the state could pay to a fraction of what the land is worth. That bill passed out of the Natural Resources and Environmental Committee and has now changed number to SF 2312. The change in the bill number makes it harder to keep track of. I hope that's not intentional. SF-2312 is now on the calendar for a full legislature vote. So call your reps and make a stink about SF-2312. Habitat and Wildlife would take a major hit in Iowa if this one passes, and it puts those private property rights, the right to do with our land, what we want, in a real pinch. You know, I can go on. Free market economy, folks. So don't let that one slide. That's it for our Where Are They Now segment. Up next, British Columbia. A 2021 legal ruling established that the province had infringed on the Treaty 8 rights of the Blueberry River First Nations people by allowing industrial development to damage the forest, lands, water, fish, and wildlife of the area. We have no issue with the court ruling, but new regulations being introduced as a remedy to the violation are way off base. The BC government has proposed closing all caribou hunting in Region 7b and establishing a limited entry hunt for moose, which seeks to reduce moose harvest by 50%. Other similar restrictions we've covered in the past target non-resident hunters, but these rules in Region 7b specifically limit resident hunting opportunity. You may notice a bit of a mismatch between diagnosis and solution here. How does ending hunts address habitat damage caused by industry? How does it restore that habitat? BC's own data shows healthy populations of both moose and caribou in this area and current hunting seasons and limits have had no demonstrable impacts on the populations of these animals. How does ending hunts address a treaty violation? The comment period for these proposals ends on March 23. That is three short days from now. BC, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, has a great write-up on this issue and the link to the province form where you can register your opposition. Pause this podcast now, navigate over to the website of the British Columbia chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and get your name on record against the proposed changes to the Pease Region 7B hunting regulations. Big thanks to Hunter Mayer and Jason Hatter for writing in about that one. A recent study from Brigham Young University has confirmed the intelligence of ungulates. During hunting season, elk move away from hunting pressure on public land to the safety of private land. The BYU team captured 445 elk in the Wasatch Mountains in central Utah starting in 2015 and gave each of them a GPS collar that reports its position every 13 hours. The scientists then watched what happened when the hunters showed up. Brock McMillan, senior author on the study, said, quote, It's crazy. On the opening day of the hunt, they move, and on the closing day, they move back. By the height of rifle hunting season, time spent by elk on public land decreased by over 30%, then rebounded to normal after the season ended. You might be tempted to file this one under N for no... crap. Many of you have come to this same conclusion with unpunched tags as your data set, And in fact, this phenomenon known as the refuge effect has been well documented for years. But what makes the BYU study relevant for you is what happened when a key variable changed. You see, in 2015, before private land hunting permits were granted in the study area, elk spent only 29% of their time on public land. After hunters were granted access to private land, elk spent 42% of their time on public land. Wherever there are elk, there are often the same complaints. All these hunters are chasing the damn elk away. All these damn elk are coming onto my private property and eating me out of house and home. So this study gives key scientific support for states expanding programs like Montana's block management system, which gives hunters more access to private land while compensating landowners for that access. The study also demonstrates that private land hunting will also make the hunting better on public land, So, if your state does not have a program like this, where public can get access to private land, or you think that program could be expanded, call up your Fish and Game Agency and tell them to go read Reducing the Refuge Effect in the February 2022 issue of the Journal of Wildlife Management. And then, follow up with these people and make sure that they know that it's public access to private ground that actually, like, causes the elk to run back onto public ground because there's many ways to hunt on private ground that can, you know, hoard the elk instead of move the elk. Moving on to the Toxic Avenger Desk. We've known about deer infected with COVID since last summer, but scientists in Canada recently turned up what might be the first case of a deer passing COVID to a person. Last fall, researchers swabbed the noses of 300 white tails killed by hunters near London, Ontario. 6% of those deer tested positive for COVID, which blows my mind. I mean, a lot of cities closed schools when the human case rate hit 3%. These deer obviously didn't follow quarantine protocols. Anyway, their surprises kept on coming. The genetic signature of this particular COVID mutation was very unusual. When they compared this infection to human cases in the same area, over the same time span, they turned up a person with this same extremely unusual COVID mutation who had been in proximity to deer, which seems to suggest that the cervids infected the human. It turns out that very similar variants had also turned up two years ago in mink and humans in Michigan, right next door to London, Ontario. Although the sample sizes are too small to document the exact means of transmission, it seems likely that mink and deer in this case served as so-called reservoir species catching COVID from people, developing unusual variations, and then passing it back. We know that the mink in question were captive mink, and it seems very probable that the deer in question in the Ontario case were part of a captive operation as well. The captive deer may have spread this variant to this one person as well as to a lot of their wild kin. This kind of back-and-forth transmission from people to animals to livestock back again is actually very common, Avian flu, swine flu, Ebola, you name it, and maybe one day the CWD will as well. So, because of this, it is probable that it won't just be the CDC tracking COVID. It will be the USDA and, quite possibly, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as well. But, you know, maybe uh, if you're a beef producer, you'll get a couple extra bucks a pound for that certified COVID-free prime rib. Yeah? Huh? Eh? Moving on to the farm desk. I bet you didn't think I'd be able to work the war in Ukraine into a podcast about hunting, fishing, and conservation. Well, think again. The ongoing war is raising the cost of food in many parts of the world, and some have proposed farming conservation land in the United States to address those concerns. Ukraine is one of the world's breadbaskets. Russia and Ukraine together account for 29% of global exports of wheat, 19% of global corn, and 80% of global sunflower oil. Needless to say, much of that production is on hold, and, according to the New York Times, the war could have a significant impact on the world's food supply. In the short term, the war will have a disastrous effect on the countries that rely on Ukraine for much of their grain. This includes impoverished countries like Bangladesh, Sudan, and Pakistan, as well as richer countries like Egypt and Turkey. But as we've learned over the last two years, supply chains are global. A loss of one of the world's breadbaskets will have far-reaching, unpredictable consequences, which is why some economists are pushing the United States to increase crop production here at home. Here's where this issue intersects with habitat conservation. Thanks to listener Taylor for sending this story in. University of Illinois agriculture economist Scott Irwin is pushing the Biden administration to increase crop production by farming the 21 million acres currently enrolled in the Conservation Reserve Program. The Conservation Reserve Program was established in 1985 with the primary goal of reducing soil erosion on highly erodible cropland and curbing the production of surplus commodities. Essentially, the program pays farmers not to farm their land for 10 to 15 years in order to give the land a chance to rest and to control crop prices and reduce erosion. But the program also has several secondary goals. According to United States Department of Agriculture, one of those goals is fostering wildlife habitat, and it's been incredibly successful. A 2001 survey of program participants found that 73% of respondents had observed positive changes in wildlife populations. That same year, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service published a study that estimated that CRP accounted for 2 million additional ducks per year between 1992 and 1997 in the prairie pothole region in North Dakota, South Dakota, and eastern Montana. In 2005, a Northern Bobwhite Quail Initiative was established within the program, which reserved 250,000 acres for enrollment of upland bird nesting and brood-rearing habitat buffers. The CRP added 300,000 acres to waterfowl and upland bird conservation initiatives in 2010, and the 2014 Farm Bill included up to $10 million in incentive payments to encourage thinning of CRP tree stands to improve wildlife habitat. CRP lands not only help preserve habitat, hunters also have an opportunity to hunt millions of these acres, and you may have had the chance to pursue whitetail, grouse, turkeys, big fat mule deer bucks, antelope, on private land enrolled in the CRP system. Despite these benefits to the environment and the outdoor community, Irwin believes we should start farming CRP land immediately, he believes the Russian-Ukraine war will be the biggest supply shock to global grain markets in my lifetime. And he argues that farming CRP is the only policy lever the U.S. government can use to avoid this catastrophe. Right now, there's no reason to panic. As far as I'm aware, no federal politician has floated this idea. For his part, Irwin is not proposing CRP lands be farmed in perpetuity He proposes issuing an emergency rule that only applies to 2022 that would allow farmers to farm their CRP land without any interruption to their CRP payments. I'm no farmer, but it strikes me as unlikely that many farmers would take that risk. Rising crop prices might make it attractive, but turning wild landscapes into farmable land doesn't happen overnight. It's already March, so I'm doubtful many outfits would be able to take advantage of this nine-month opportunity. Not to mention the cost of fertilizer and diesel fuel make this, you know, risky business. Still, if the predictions of economists come true and the war rages on, politicians will start looking around for ways to address the rising cost of food. Some of those proposals might impact the land we hunt and the critters we pursue. If they do, maybe we can suggest not turning amazing agricultural ground into big, ghastly, god-awful, water-sucking, habitat-destroying condominiums. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. As you know, you can always write in and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods by hitting A-S-K-C-A-L. That's Ask at TheMeatEater.com. And remember, spring's on its way. Check out www.steeldealers.com to find a local and knowledgeable steel dealer near you. They're going to send you home with what you need and not with what you don't. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week.